morning, everybody. Takes me a moment to get all situated here. You are probably not aware, but um, <clears throat> let me back up. So about five months ago, six months ago, I guess, um, when this whole thing with the pandemic started, I started walking up and down um, 50 seconds. And um, <clears throat> I usually walk anywhere between, well, four or five miles a day um, to get my steps in, um, up and down 50 seconds between K and L. I used to cross L and go down to M, and I don't do that anymore. The traffic is just too much, and cars are whizzing by at 50, 60 miles an hour, and I really don't want to do that trying to get across there. So I've stopped doing that. Um, and as a consequence of that, walking up and down on 52nd, I've come to meet all the dogs that live on that stretch of road. I know them by name. They know me too. I have to stop and pet, you know, all the dogs while I'm walking our dog and doing this. Okay. So, um, and occasionally I meet the owners. And I've come to meet most of my neighbors on 52nd. I didn't realize, you know, the, the backgrounds on their lives. And you're all connected to this, by the way, because I found out that there's this one retired couple, and their first names are Jerry and Judy. I don't know their last name. And Jerry went in six weeks ago for a triple bypass. Um, and it didn't go well. And he went steadily downhill afterwards. Um, there, w there was one day where he was feeling pretty good. I remember this was about two and a half weeks ago, where he was able to sit up. And it had been some time. It was the first time after the, the surgery that he had been able to sit up. And his wife was, he was down at UCLA down in LA. And so she was driving down. They were letting him come in, her come in for two hours a day to visit with him. And so uh, I talked to Bill and Colleen about this, and they suggested that we give, them a give, give Judy a gas card, being she's spending all this time on the freeway to and from every day. And so uh, you, all of you, contributed to that out of our benevolence fund. And uh, about a week after that, um, Jerry got very, very sick. And the next morning, about 2 AM, Jerry died. And um, it turns out that um, he died on the exact same day that my dad did, the second anniversary. And so Judy and I have this in common now, that, that uh, we lost a very close member of our family. And she's doing reasonably well. Um, we caught her out raking her leaves one day, and you know, Leanne and I are like, can we do that for you? Would you let us do that for you? And she's, I, I would really prefer that you not, because it gives me something to do. And, and so Leanne and I immediately understood that, and, and um, we talked about perhaps, you know, her having a pet or something, and she says, I've already told my kids, do not buy me a dog for Christmas. So um, 
I never know what to say to people when these sorts of things happen. And it's, it's very, very difficult. And uh, I'm really bad at that sort of thing anyway. All of you know this about me, right? That, that I just don't know what, I, I'm not that sort of a person where I immediately know exactly the right thing to say in those situations. I'm just terrible at it. So whenever something bad happens and I don't say anything, it's not because I, I, I don't know what to say. I really don't. I'm really at a loss for words. And I hope you will all forgive me for that. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty Lord, our God and Savior, how great you are. We come to you this Advent season. Help us to remember your Son, Jesus, who came down from heaven to be with us. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to stir our hearts. Lord Jesus, we remember you, our God and Savior. We thank you for this day. You are the most high and almighty. You are sovereign over the whole universe. We thank you for all the gifts that you rain down upon us every day. As we look to your scripture today, your truth set our hearts free. Free us to believe your truth, to hold fast to the words of your servants who communicated your very words to us wrote them down. Lord, we know sometimes your truth is difficult. It causes trials in our lives. Lord, we know you're working to make us in the image of your Son. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is the object of our saving faith, and to believe the words spoken of and by him under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given here, breathed out by God, and written down by your servants. Jesus, this season, as we think about your birth to Mary, let us remember that night. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, I wanted to look briefly at the offices of Christ. We're looking at some of these passages today, and specifically, we're looking at Jesus holding the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now, one of those is really easy for us to see. We, we understand Jesus as king, but prophet and priest might be a little bit more difficult to see. I want to explain. Normally we go through the Bible in an expositional manner. We pick a, a book of the Bible and Bill and I, we go from front to back through that book. And whatever God is trying to tell us, you're, you're going to get what we understand from that. And sometimes we don't get it either. And I'm sure the prophets were going, I don't get this. You know, I, I, I can see where those, those men and women, I, 
must have been very difficult for them at times. But they were faithful. So that's what we call an expositional approach. At Easter and at Advent, we take a different approach, and it's topical. So this, this is the two types of preaching you're going to run into, expositional and topical. And right now the topic is Advent, and we're talking about Christ, and we're talking about why he came. So expositional is usually regarded as a higher form of study. It requires more thought and insight on our part. We are looking at the Word of God and trying to discern the direction of the Holy Spirit so that we may understand the Word of God more deeply. During Advent and Passion, we're looking at it in this topical manner. In this case, the topics are assembled from Scripture into one cohesive whole. Now, hopefully, that presumes, this presumes an understanding by the person who's giving the message that they understand the topic well. Okay. And hopefully they lean very heavily on the Holy Spirit to deliver that message. Okay. And of course, I just lost where I was at. Here we go. Now, and I should mention that I know Bill works very hard at this. I, I think I work very hard at it. Um, I have like four or five different study references that I paw through every single time when I go to assemble one of these. And it's, it's funny how I'll be reading a passage, and I'll be reading a commentary, or Grudem. Bill gave me a new version, the, the new version of Grudem today. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to be comparing that to the old version for next week's sermon. You know I will be doing that. But it, we work pretty hard at that to try and put these things together. And it takes me probably anywhere from 12 to 20 hours to put a sermon together. I'm really bad at it. And, and I get distracted and I have to go do something or take the dog for a walk and go meet neighbors and those sorts of things. So just a bit of background. In the Old Testament, there were three offices established to lead God's people. The offices established by, were established by God, and in order, they were the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet would communicate God's word and instructions to the people. An example of the prophet is Nathan. The king in this narrative is David. So we're looking at 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 6, and 11 through 13. Okay, 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 6, and verses 11 through 13. All right. So this is 7 and one through six. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. 
And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Something else happens in here that's not relevant to what we're looking at. Let's jump down to verse 11. All right. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb. We burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me, or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Now the important thing here is to notice what Nathan, the prophet, had said. Nathan turns around, he looks at David, and he says, Thus says the Lord. And this was after he pronounced that it was okay to do a thing, then he has to go back and says, Thus says the Lord. Now if you look at all the Old Testament prophets, over and over, you can hear it. Thus says the Lord. Okay? You caught that. So a couple things to note here. First, when David is suffering a crisis from his own people, David does not attempt to appease his people. Instead, David seeks after God. And second, the priest knows this is a critical moment for David and the people of Israel. Excuse me. I skipped a page. Let me back up. Okay. At first, when you look at what Nathan is saying, you think he's talking about Solomon coming after David. Let me back up and read this passage one more time. From that time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you think that Nathan is talking about Solomon coming after David, 
But then there is the build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So clearly, we know that that's not talking about Solomon, because that didn't happen for Solomon. Solomon's kingdom fell apart with his son, with Solomon's son, David's grandchild. So that verse, what Nathan is saying there, is not about Solomon. What he's actually talking about is he's talking about Jesus. And this temple that he's talking about is not the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the church that exists after Christ comes. This verse is really about us. Nathan the prophet is talking about us. Now, so, you notice here Nathan is speaking to David as the prophet. He's speaking God's word. Thus says the Lord. Okay. Next to be established was the office of priest. The priest would communicate back to God for the people from God's church. The priest offered up sacrifices for God, prayers to God, and praises to God for the people. Abathar is the chief priest. And David is chasing after the Amalekites. And they had taken David's family hostage, as well as other families of the soldiers in Israel's army. So this is 1 Samuel 30, 6 through 19. 1 Samuel 30, 6 through 19. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. Ephod is a, you could think of it as an outer jacket, a formal, a formal jacket. For, and the priest would wear this one day a year when he would go to offer the sacrifice for atonement. This is a big deal. This, this particular item normally is not touched except for that one day. And David says, bring me that jacket. And so Abathar goes and gets it and brings it. Okay. And David said to Abathar, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you surely will overtake and surely shall rescue. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, and 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. And they found the Egyptian in open country and brought him to David. And so David then... He had taken him down. Behold, they were spread abroad over all the land. And this is the Amalekites now. David has found the Amalekites. They were eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land. 
from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. So, David is suffering this crisis of his own people. David does not attempt to appease his people. Instead, David seeks after God. Second, the priest Abathar knows this is the critical moment for David and the people of Israel. And I'm rather sure Abathar immediately offers prayers for David and Israel as he is handing over the ephod to David. And God blesses Israel and David with victory. This is the job of the priest, to do these things for the people. When I say offer sacrifices, you can immediately see how Christ is acting as priest in our stead for us. The last office established was the office of king. The king was meant to be the representative of God to the people. This office was not established necessarily by God, but by the people seeking to have a more tangible representative of God. In the original establishment of the kingdom of Israel, there was no king. God was their king. And this is where the people go wrong. God is their king, but the people demanded a human king, which God granted to them. And their first king, Saul, was not a great example of what a king should be. We have to back up just a little bit before where the office of the king is established. The very last verse in the book of Judges. Judges 21, verse 25. Judges 21, verse 25. And by the way, this is not unique to the end of the book of Judges. It's sprinkled all throughout the book of Judges, this same phrase, over and over and over again. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, it's a series of stories of how people got this terribly, terribly wrong and committed all sorts of atrocities in the name of God because it was right in their own eyes and it was not what God was telling them to do. So then, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Ouch. Imagine God saying that, right? 
This was how Saul was selected to be king over all of Israel. It was because of the demand made by the people on God. We're going to look for a moment more deeply at these three offices and how Christ, who now holds these offices for us. So first, we're going to talk about Christ as prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophets had one job. They would speak the words of God to the people. While there were prophets before Moses, the greatest human example of a prophet is Moses. Yet Moses knew there would be one who would come after him that was far greater. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This said, the New Testament does not greatly identify Jesus as, a prof, as the prophet. Jesus is not viewed as the successor to the position of prophet the way we view Moses. That doesn't mean it's not there. It's just we sort of miss that part. There do exist some passages that refer to Jesus as prophet, though. Matthew 16, 13 to 14. Matthew 16, 13 to 14. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So people recognized that Jesus was a prophet. Their failure was to not go beyond that. They only saw him as a human prophet, just as Elijah or any of the other prophets. They saw him in this line. In one of the Gospels, Jesus raises a young man from the dead. It's Luke, actually. Jesus raises a young man from the dead. And his mother and the people proclaim, this is Luke 7, 16. Luke 7, 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen from among us, and God has visited his people. There's a third place. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus feeds the multitudes. And the people saw the sign that he had done. This is John 6, 14. John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And later in Acts, 
Luke writes down something that Peter says. Acts 3, 22 to 24. Acts 3, 22 to 24. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Peter properly says that Jesus is the prophet promised long ago by Moses. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. One, Jesus is the one whom all the Old Testament prophecies were about. There are many, but this particular one is from Jesus talking to the two disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Now Jesus is talking to two of his disciples. They don't recognize Christ at this point. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Luke 24, 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Second, about Jesus. Jesus was not just a messenger of revelation from God as all the other prophets were. Jesus is the source of revelation from God. Catch this. This is from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 7. And when I say this, you're going to go, yeah, the entire Old Testament says this, right? Isaiah is saying it right here. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Now we're going to flip over to where Jesus is now set talking. This is Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Did you catch that when it went by? Isaiah says, thus says the Lord God. And Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus is using his own authority. Now I have to admit, when Grudem says this right here, and I got this piece out of Grudem, when Grudem says that, I had not caught this before, this contrast between the prophets in the Old Testament, who always said, thus says the Lord. Jesus never says that. Jesus says, I say to you, Jesus is Lord. A final thought here about Jesus as, as the prophet, in the more global sense of the prophet. The prophet is the one who reveals God to us and tells us the very words of God. 
In this way, Jesus is truly and fully the prophet. And in fact, Jesus is the only one who is fully and truly the prophet. All of the Old Testament prophecies prefigure Jesus himself. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Okay. Next, we're going to talk about Christ as priest. Now, you remember, prophets come from God to us, bring the words from God to us. The priest represents the people back to God. Okay? So you can immediately see how Jesus, this applies to Jesus. In the Old Testament, the office of priest was, God's, was God appointing the one who would offer sacrifices to intercede for the people. The priest would also offer prayers for the people and would offer praise to God on behalf of the people. The priest would be the vehicle to sanctifying the people. The people could then come before God, though this was in a very limited way in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus is our great high priest. The epistle of Hebrews gives an exhausting, exhaustive argument for this, by the way. I'm only going to give you a handful of references. Grudem goes in, there must be 40 references in Hebrews to this exact fact. I'm only going to give you a handful. Okay. Um, the very, very first verse in uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Oh, one, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament practice of sacrifice of bulls, sheep, goats, and birds cannot pay for sin. They are in a like fashion portending a greater and complete sacrifice for sin. I've said for years, can you imagine the millennia, over a millennia, of Hebrew children asking their parents, why does the animal have to die? How does the animal dying pay for our sin? And the only thing the parents could say was to look at their children and say, death is the payment for sin. And the animal is paying for our sin. And, and that's the only explanation that they could give. And that's a really feeble explanation, right? That, that, that you know the animal does not have the value of, the, of a person. And yet, the animal is paying for that. You don't know the answer to this. Okay, Hebrews 10, 3 to 4. Hebrews 10, 3 to 4. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. There it is. It's impossible. Can't be done. By the way, you are aware that the temple in Jerusalem is the only place that this sacrifice could be made. So there is no place for the Jews to have their sacrifice today. They've gone almost 2,000 years without a place to have their sacrifice. Almost 2,000 years they can't do this. This is one of the ways that you know that the Jewish religion is not complete in the way that it is structured today. That there has to be something that it passed from one to the other at that point. Okay. 
By offering himself, Jesus satisfies the justice demanded for sin. Jesus is the perfect and complete sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. <coughs> but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This makes complete sense to me. In mathematics, there's this whole concept of the infinite. What is infinity? You, you can't get to the end. It goes on forever, right? Jesus is the infinite. This is the only way that your sin, even one sin, can be paid for. One sin puts an infinite gap between you and God. You can't get there. That's not possible. The only one who can pay for that infinite gap is someone who is infinite, and that is Christ. This makes complete sense to me. Okay. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and complete. John 19.30, John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus dies at this point. Jesus says, It is finished. The whole thing is done. Now I've got a trick question for you guys at this point. Okay? This is the point at which Jesus dies for our sins. Trick question. Just to make your heads explode. Did Jesus' death pay for all sins? The answer is no. We know that most people are condemned to hell. Therefore, Jesus did not pay for their sins. Got that? These people go to hell. So that means Jesus did not pay for their sins. Because if he had... They wouldn't have to do anything. They would be free of that burden. But because Jesus did not pay for their sins, they end up condemned to hell. On the other hand, the believers who believe in Christ, Jesus paid for their sins, and they go to heaven 
to be with God forever. You follow that argument? It, it's, it has to be that way. Absolutely has to be this way. Jesus only pays for the sins of those who are saved and go to heaven. We're going to talk about more about this next week, by the way. Okay. Second, there was a one way back at the beginning. This is number two now, all right? Jesus always brings us closer to God. In the Old Testament, the priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, but they would come into the presence of God to offer praise and plead for the people. Jesus does this also, but much more. Jesus is our perfect high priest, and he continuously leads us into God's presence. We may not be paying attention when Jesus is doing this, but Jesus is doing it nonetheless even when we're not paying attention. Okay. It's so much more that we no longer require an animal sacrifice. We do not require a temple, nor do we have need for a special priesthood to stand between us and the presence of God. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. Jesus did not enter the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple in Jerusalem, nor did Jesus need to. Jesus rules over the heavenly places, and in the very presence of the Father, Jesus sits at his right hand. (coughs) Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of this says we have a far greater place of honor and privilege than any of the Old Testament priests who served in the Jerusalem temple. Think about that. All these priests that have served in the temple in Jerusalem, we have a higher position. Let me move on to the next one. Jesus is our perfect high priest, and he continually prays for us. Old Testament priests would pray for the people of God. Jesus, as our perfect high priest, does not fail to continually pray for us. Consequently, uh, Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Paul makes nearly the same statement in Romans. Romans 8.34. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? From this we know that Jesus continually sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us, bringing specific requests and special petitions before the Father. This is the role that Jesus, who is both fully God and also fully human, is uniquely qualified. God could simply, through direct observation, satisfy all of our physical needs. But God was pleased to intercede between God and man by sending his only son to become a human being and live within the limitations of our terrestrial existence. Jesus is the only one that knows what it is to be inside a body like ourselves. God, the Father, has never done that. He may understand it, but he has never experienced it. Christ has. This is what Christ did by coming down and being born as a baby in Bethlehem and living the life that he did and dying in our place. Christ has that very, very unique experience and background. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the only one who in all of heaven or earth can be both finite and infinite at the same time, to know the limitations of being a mortal creature and also be infinite God at the same time. This is how Jesus can understand the needs, wants, and aspirations of a mortal person and be infinite to hear all the requests and supplications of all of his church both spoken and unspoken, the things that we fail to say, the things that we fail to ask for, he knows that. Jesus knows that, and he pleads our case before the Father. Jesus is the only one who can be the perfect high priest for us and is able to sit at the right hand of the Father, raised up forever above high heaven. Okay, this is the last section, and I know this is a long one. Christ is king. In the Old Testament, the position of king was granted to provide authority over the people and to rule over the nations. In general, this is still true of kings and monarchs, even today. They take an oath when they become monarch that they will serve the people for God. In general, this is true. Christ was a king of sorts, but not an earthly king. In the New Testament, Jesus is born to be king of the Jews. Matthew 2.2. 2. Matthew 2.2. 2. Now after Jesus was born in Judea, in the, land, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Yet Christ refused all attempts to make him any sort of earthly king with political or military power. John 6.15, John 6.15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
We know that Jesus is indeed a king, and Christ announced his kingdom in his sermon, Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. It is true that Jesus is the king of the people of God. And note that Jesus does not silence his disciples who cried out to him on Palm Sunday. Luke 19, 37 to 40. I love this passage. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, and you notice, he doesn't say, Thus says the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is using his own authority. And after the Father raised Jesus up, Christ was given far greater authority over the universe and over the church. We, the people of God's church, will more completely recognize what is happening on that day when Jesus returns. We will see Jesus in all the power and the glory and honor that he so richly deserves. John tells us, Revelation 19.16, Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Indeed, all of this points out that we have an obligation and a position as prophets, priests, and kings. Looking back to Adam and Eve, we can clearly see the roles of prophet, priest, and king that they held. They spoke the words of God to creation, and they in turn brought sacrifice to God and praise and worship. And they were created to rule over God's creation. In our future state, when we are in heaven before the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we can also clearly imagine our having those roles as well. Also in the here and now, we can understand our roles to serve in those same positions. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifice are pleasing to God. With sin came also false teaching about God. As humans, we speak and hear false teaching about God all the time. Sin is the infinite barrier that cuts off our access to God so that we cannot come into God's presence. And instead of kings and queens who are guardians and protectors of God's grift of creation, tyranny reigns over creation and over the people of God. And our ability to be prophet, priest, and king are robbed by the reality of sin. There is a partial recovery of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. 
From time to time, godly people will hold these offices in purpose, if not in title. But there are so many others who falsely hold these positions, and the purity and holiness God intended for people to fulfill those roles are not fully realized. Jesus is the perfect example of those roles. Jesus completely and fully projected the true prophet, the great high priest, and the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus offers the ultimate sacrifice before God. Jesus offers himself to cover our sins. We Christians are now amazingly to imitate Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, though in a subordinate way. We are called to speak God's truth into the world. We are called to offer sacrifice to God and lift up praise and honor to God in prayer. We also hold a position as king under Christ. Jesus grants to us spiritual authority over the evil forces that oppose God. And when Jesus comes again and brings the new earth and the new heavens and the new earth, we will be true prophets, true priests, and true kings once again. And for all eternity, we will be subordinate to God in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is calling to us. Come back. Be my prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus had to pay for our rebellion against God, our sin, our unfaithfulness. These were the very things that take away our ability to fulfill those roles. Jesus takes away our guilt and covers our sin. And it is atoned for by Christ's death on the cross. God, faithful and true, sends Jesus to pay for our sins, to make us white as snow. It is God who saves. It is Jesus who is our Redeemer. And Christ pays for the penalty which belongs solely to us. We get to spend eternity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we'll be all witness to his greatness and splendor. That shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, with no need of a temple because God dwells there. And indeed, we wait for Christ to come. Let's pray. Almighty God and Lord, you are amazing and incredible. You are beyond beautiful. You have kept your words from your prophets and apostles and sheltered them for us to have today, down through the ages, just for us. Lord, we have been unfaithful, and yet you continue to hold us in your hand. Father, hide your words in our hearts. Carve the words of yours deep inside. Give us the lessons we must learn from you and only from you and guide us in the ways of your will. Lord, we love you. You are so amazing. We bless you and honor you. We praise your name above all names. The name of Jesus. Amen.